I'm Janet McMahon, Managing Editor of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. And since April 5th, 1982, when we published our first issue, we have been covering all the activities of APAC and the Greater Israel Lobby. So it's great to see such a wonderful turnout for our fifth conference on the Israel Lobby. And as you all know, there's a very strong wind outside today. And thank you for braving that wind. And it's a wind that I do think is blowing in our direction. So as a result of last century's two world wars, the majority of the world's countries committed themselves to the principle of international law, which was embodied in the United Nations. But adherence to that principle and to the institution has not been guaranteed and in some cases has been outright undermined. Our first speaker, Dr. Virginia Tilley, is a professor of political science at Southern Illinois University. She earned her MA and PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an MA from Georgetown Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. She has conducted research in Central America, Israel-Palestine, post-apartheid South Africa, and Oceania. She is the author of The One-State Solution, a pragmatic analysis of the two-state solution in Israel-Palestine, and editor of Beyond Occupation, Apartheid, Colonialism, and International Law in the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Dr. Tilly is also the co-author with Professor Richard Falk of a 2017 report commissioned by the UN's Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia titled Israeli Practices Towards the Palestinian People and the Question of Apartheid. Despite intense pressure from Israel and the US, the commission's chair, Rima Khalif, refused to withdraw the report and resigned in protest. The UN subsequently deleted the report from its website. Fortunately, however, we are about to benefit from the expertise which informed that report's findings. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Virginia Tilley. Thank you uh, very much. It's a distinct privilege to be here, um, uh, especially in the um, uh, somewhat daunting position of first speaker. I just have to set the tone. Um, I'm not seeing my uh, presentation quite yet. Maybe that could go on. There we go. Um, the, uh, in this presentation, I'm, I'm not actually going to talk too much about the findings of the report. Um, the re we really did write that report for a broad, informed audience of uh, concerned people, um, and it is not hard to, to read, I think. You don't have to be a legal scholar to do it. So I'm going to uh, briefly summarize the report itself and then talk about what I think is much more engaging at this point to me, which is the implications of the report, uh, implications for diplomacy and conflict resolution in Israel-Palestine. Um, so I was asked to first to address the question of, is the U.S. supporting an apartheid state in Israel-Palestine? Well, yes, uh, it is, uh, in short. Um, it is an apartheid state. Uh, we, um, and, and by the way, there is no such thing in international law as apartheid state, um, but it, its practices are consistent with apartheid, and I'll come to that in a moment. 
Um, but the deeper answer here is uh, yes, and so are a lot of other people, including people who wouldn't think they are. Um, and that's what I wanted to come to uh, in regard to the implications of this finding for um, uh, questions such as the two-state solution. Um, essentially, those seeking partition uh, are endorsing an apartheid state, um, and um, that is a bit uh, startling, uh, so I want to get to that. Uh, and it raises this dilemma um, that if apartheid anywhere is inadmissible, and destabilizing, it cannot comprise the basis for a just and stable peace. Uh, now this lifts us out of a question of whether you're pro anybody, um, and simply if you're concerned about international peace and security, which um, apartheid is considered to be a threat to. Um, so in this talk again, I'm gonna talk briefly about the analysis, the legal definition of apartheid, um, how it works, and um, why, uh, it requires Israel to sustain the occupation. This is a particular point I'd like to bring forward here and then move on to the implications and why uh, it, it brings us directly to the question of reunification as a, uh, the, mode, the only viable mode of conflict resolution. So it is based on three sources. The first is my own book that um, I wrote uh, narrowly on the question of uh, whether Israel could be expected to withdraw from the occupied territories to allow a two-state solution. Um, the second one was this uh, really extraordinary experience of coordinating a team of international lawyers. I'm a political scientist, not an international lawyer, uh, in, uh, through a, a project um, supported by the South African government. I believe this is on the desk out there. It is a, a legal analysis. Uh, any of you who are familiar with international law should find it rewarding. Others of you might find it a bit dense. Um, the, uh, and the third one, of course, is this uh, wonderful uh, experience I had, um, a, a privilege of working with um, Dr. Richard Falk on the UN report, um, which was mentioned already. And a lot of what I'm going to say here uh, came out of that report, but a lot of what's in that report relied on the previous one, Beyond Occupation. So the deeper legal analysis for the UN report is to be found there. So what is apartheid? We, um, very briefly, the report gets into this in detail. Uh, we use apartheid very broadly. Um, people, anything that sort of strikes us as racist or segregationist maybe uh, elicit this term. Um, that's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we use terms uh, any way that um, are suggestive or useful for a particular analysis. But if we're going to argue that states are accountable under international law to act to end apartheid, then we must refer to the law which prescribes that obligation. That means we are brought to the, the uh, relevant international law, and that is found in two major instruments, the International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid and the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. The first uh, definition is far larger, much more detailed, um, but it lists a series of acts, including uh, segregation and um, uh, reserves that I'll come to, but it says that these are only acts of apartheid under certain conditions. They have to fit certain overarching conditions. Um, and those conditions include, uh, they may be similar to practices in South Africa. This is a universal instrument. They do not have to be exactly the same. The point is whether they seek, they have these other qualities of the law, that they are, um, that these are acts 
committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination. That, I call that the purpose clause. And that it involves racial groups that, uh, and a systematic system of oppression, a systematic system, sorry, um, that is, it is not just a random collection of discrete laws, but a comprehensive institutionalized system um, uh, that distinguishes uh, the apartheid. And the Rome Statute picks up on that by emphasizing, bringing in a new term, which is institutionalized regime. Um, political scientists get all flushed with pleasure when you talk about regimes because we have loads of theory about regimes. And, uh, we, we get start to feel a little bit more on familiar land. Um, all these uh, elements of the definition are satisfied in this case. The report I refer you to the report on this. Um, it is an institutionalized regime. Uh, it's a comprehensive system of laws that ensures Jewish national privileges. And I want to stress that hyphenated construction here. Uh, the idea that Jews are a nation and that as, as a people or a nation that they have this uh, certain privileges. Um, that it does include policies similar to South Africa, but, that, but any policy variation there would not disqualify them necessarily, but it's nonetheless quite suggestive that they do. It is a racial conflict according to international law um, defining what is racial discrimination, which includes groups defined by dissent. And in this case, the local construction of Jewishness and Palestinianness or Arabness is um, uh, a, a descent groups. The, the, the key quality here, which conveys special privileges to one group over another, is uh, postulations about um, their descent and therefore their rights to the land dating from antiquity. Uh, expressed particularly in the Declaration of the Establishment of the State of Israel, which has the status of constitutional law and Israeli uh, law. I'm, I'm speaking kind of fast here about law, so if you're getting a little uh, like the wind outside, it's uh, not, not to worry. It's, um, it's clarified in the report. Um, and crucially, the purpose, uh, the purpose clause is satisfied that there is uh, this aim, this formal aim, to maintain Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. We have a cluster of laws uh, and policies on the books uh, to look at to confirm that Israel has that purpose in, if anyone was in doubt about it. Um, so from a legal perspective, that is satisfied as well. Uh, what was more interesting to me when figuring out what uh, how Israel was pursuing its apartheid regime was the, um, the way it works, which is these crucial policy variations among four interwoven regimes and by the domain, sorry, uh, which domain referring here to a territorial uh, geographic entity and a cluster of expectations, norms, rules, practices within that uh, geographically defined ambit. Um, the first domain being Palestinian citizens of Israel. Now, what matters here most is the right to vote, because if you're going to have Jewish and democratic state, then it is, becomes important not to allow non-Jews to vote those laws out. That means that you have to constrain the vote. You can allow people to vote, but you can't allow them to vote on that point. And in order to do that, you have to make sure that the non-Jewish vote is never large enough to threaten those laws. 
Um, so Palestinian citizens of Israel famously do have the vote, which is often cited as the crucial difference with South Africa, but they are not allowed to vote against their own minority status. They are not allowed to vote against the Jewish national character of Israel. Um, Palestinian residents of Jerusalem, about 300,000 people, uh, have no national vote. Uh, they can vote for the municipal government, but not for the national government, so they are carefully excised from that potential body of voters who could challenge the, um, the Jewish national character of Israel. Uh, Palestinians in the occupied territories, of course, uh, have no vote. They are not citizens. And um, they can vote for the Palestinian Authority under the terms of Oslo, but they, um, they are sequ carefully sequestered. Five plus million people are carefully pushed out of any possibility of joining an electoral bloc that could challenge this state. And domain four is the Palestinian refugees outside of the country, which outside of uh, the territory under Israeli control, which is clearly, obviously, they don't have the vote. So another way to think of this is as a system, uh, one regime uh, that is a, effectively composed of four um, tailored sets of laws covering each population to achieve the same goal, which is to ensure that Israel remains a Jewish and democratic state. Um, all kinds of arguments about whether you can be a Jewish and democratic state or a white and democratic state. Uh, I recognize that, but we don't have time to get into that now. Um, what I would like to stress here is that this system requires that Israel maintain the occupation. Uh, because if Israel is, does not keep the occupied territories under belligerent occupation, under military occupation, it faces the twin threat that a truly sovereign Palestinian state could form in those territories, which would then threaten Israel's capacity to prevent population mixing. Population mixing is the death knell for any racial state because the neat division of populations begins to go away. And when you have people mixing, they make babies and it all falls down. Um, on the other hand, annexation uh, or full integration uh, would require providing citizenship to the Palestinians, so that cannot be allowed either. Um, current talk about annexation is uh, reflecting that dilemma, but um, the, it's better for Israel not to annex it. Uh, so what is the solution? Well, military occupation. So um, people who say, well, we have to solve, we, we must put apartheid to one side in order to, to look at the occupation. I know that I think you have that the other way around. Uh, one is follow, the logic of occupation is following the logic of apartheid. So speeding right along, part two implications for diplomacy. If uh, apartheid, uh, as it always does, um, it destabilizes the whole region, threatens international peace and security, it must be stopped on those grounds alone. It is moral, morally untenable. It's a crime against humanity. It must be stopped, but how? Um, the vision of two states is fatally flawed. Uh, my first book on the one-state solution got into this in some detail. Uh, just from a pragmatic point of view, I, I really only addressed that one thing. Um, but, um, and it, but it does mean that we cannot anticipate uh, that Israel will withdraw. It, it, it's become emperor's new clothes kind of fantasy to think that that will happen. I don't think that's acceptable anymore. Uh, it requires a great deal of defense and it fails. 
Um, sustaining Jewish statehood on the part of the territory. Uh, he, now this is the crucial, the crucial thing. If you, par if you partition the land in order to allow Israel to remain Israel in one part of it and a Palestinian state to form in the other part of it, you are basically saying apartheid will continue in that part where Israel is, is now composed. Saying so Israel will continue to be a Jewish and democratic state, will continue to operate the way it is operating, will continue to be apartheid regime in a slightly different modified border, within different borders. Now, let's, my thought experiment, transplant that I did in South Africa, it would have been okay for white South Africans to sustain apartheid in part of the country and turn over the rest of it to black South Africans. No one entertained such an idea. It was, it was anathema. This is the same thing here. You can't end apartheid by, by dividing the land and allowing it to continue in another part of the land. There's other aspects of this, but cutting to the chase, um, I would propose, therefore, that reunification is the only way to end apartheid. And since there's so many reasons to do that, uh, we have to take that very seriously. Um, for activism, and by activism I mean every kind of activism from grassroots to legal activism and diplomatic activity and so forth. Um, if you're going to, end, and I just wanted to focus again on this angle of end the occupation. End the occupation is a mantra, it's a, it's a, it's a slogan, it's a sign people carry in, in marches. It's um, also a legal argument. But how? Again, Israel's withdrawal from the OPT cannot be anticipated. Um, at best, it would be very partial. Uh, this is the Olmert plan, by the way, that you're looking at up here, um, where all the yellow would be Israel and the white would be Palestine, uh, with a little umbilicus between the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, this is obviously an unviable uh, state building. You couldn't control water, you couldn't control agriculture, you can't build a road that connects them, you can't, you know, it, it, it's unworkable. Would not end apartheid. Um, establish a state of Palestine to leverage withdrawal. Now, this is a very popular movement right now, big diplomatic push in the United Nations to do this. Um, however, my point here is that if we accept the apartheid analysis that this is an apartheid regime, then such a state would be a Bantustan. Uh, it would lack the attributions of true sovereignty. Um, Israel, as long as it is composed as an apartheid regime, cannot accept any Palestinian state that is not a Bantustan because any truly sovereign state would threaten the Jewish national character of Israel. Um, this means that a Bantustan state, a state of Palestine formed under these conditions, would only secure Palestinian poverty, underdevelopment, frustration, insecurity, and essentially uh, sustain the conflict itself. I'd like to just take an extra moment here, and I'm going to destroy my time constraint, I hope uh, not, but I will pray, that um, a little bit of extra attention to the Bantustans is worthwhile, and I frankly encourage everyone here to, to Google that and spend 15 minutes looking at the Bantustans a bit more uh, than we sometimes do. I went to South Africa to study this material, um, because I realized I didn't understand it, and I found it fascinating as a comparison to the Palestinian Authority and the territorial and institutional constraints that it's operating under. Apart let's just think through the logic. Apartheid imperative. The imperative of apartheid, wherever it would appear, would be to prevent racial mixing. Otherwise, the whole logic begins to fall apart. If you can't discreetly have different populations, there's nothing to defend. 
Um, in order to do that, you need strict geographic segregation. This requires that you, if you're going to actually make this work, you need separate authorities within these territories. Uh, the South Africans interestingly called them black self-government authorities. And guess what Oslo called them? Palestinian self-government authority. It's a great deal of conversations between Israel and South Africa about the Bantu stands. It took a lot of lessons from it. Uh, I learned that from the diplomats in uh, South Africa, by the way. Um, this channels Palestinian or black um, or indigenous political aspirations to the local authority rather than to the state, to the dominant state. It's very convenient for an apartheid state to displace the frustrations and ambitions uh, and the quest for rights of the population is dominating to their own leader, leadership operating under very tight constraints, of course. Uh, the pictures you're looking at uh, on the top is a lineup of the Bantustan leaders in South Africa in the nine, uh, there were 10 uh, uh, Bantustans, but nine of these leaders were in this picture. Um, and are below the uh, Palestinian Authority. And um, I, by the way, I don't mean to impugn the integrity or, or you know, political will of any of the Palestinian Authority people. My point here is a structural one, that they are put into a position where they, they are compelled to act like a Bantustan Authority. Um, and the, one of the, from the, Point of view of the dominant uh, state, the, point, the main function of this authority is to repress dissent, which in the top picture you see the Bantustan armed forces, in the lower part you see the Palestinian armed forces doing exactly that, maintaining the Bantustan through proxy measures. Um, I think the battery's giving out on this thing because I'm pushing and, well. Let's see what happens now. Bing. There we go. All right. Um, the Oslo Accords, um, and I, we don't have time to get into this. I wrote a separate article about this, though, because I found it fascinating. The Oslo Accords established the Palestinian Authority on terms almost identical to the South African Bantustan constitutions, blow by blow. If you put those next to each other, you find almost exactly the same arrangements. And it's interesting that the ANC perceived this as a trap, rejected it from the beginning, and refused to have anything to do with it. And um, uh, in fact, I understand Nelson Mandela told Arafat, bad idea, don't go for this. This is not a good idea. And they went for it anyway. Um, that wasn't supposed to happen. A little tricky device here. Um, so in short, the PIA is, is now locked into being this self-government authority, and it cannot act uh, independently of that role. The alternative, therefore, is if the partition can only sustain apartheid, and we must rethink the conflict on using South Africa not as a model, but as inspiration or a th kind of a thought experiment. Uh, they called it colonialism of a special type. It doesn't involve um, agreeing and admitting that a large population of people has come in and indigenized, settled, is not going to go away. 
called settler colonialism, shift the model from a colonial to a settler colonial model. And that means that you do not end it by um, partition or, or uh, you can't end settler colonialism and its power by partition. You have to end it by eliminating settler domination. Um, treating Palestinian, Palestine as a multinational state uh, is um, on the basis of race would only perpetuate a settler discourse because it is Zionism that is proposed that there are these identities that um, can't, um, that are, then if you recognize them and institutionalize them, you're essentially doing, uh, perpetuating apartheid. Treat the whole country as one country, Palestine, wrongly divided by race. This was the South Africa formula. It's one country wrongly divided by race. This means reunifying mandate Palestine. I'm out of time, aren't I? How am I doing? Okay, um, I have. A, there is a legal basis for doing this. If we turn back to the League of Nations mandate, it always proposed that it was one country for everyone who lived there. Um, that it would not be a Jewish state or uh, anybody's state. It would be a secular democratic state. Uh, so there's a nice, fat uh, legal um, argument uh, to explore there. The hard part of this is that reunification does raise very serious questions of identity shifts to reconstruct the idea of the nation, reconstruct the idea of the groups. In this case, Palestine would stop being a foggy mandate reference or a dreamy future, but it would be one state that belongs to all who live in it. It would not be the exclusive geographic heritage of any one part of the population. It would not require the departure or exclusion of anybody, which is tough for people who have lost a great deal to it. Jewish has to be reconceived as an ethnic group with full civil, social, and cultural rights, not a people with superior rights to the land, not as a nation with rights to self-determination. And Palestinian, this is the toughest thing for uh, me to say as a non-Palestinian, but it, uh, returning to the idea that it is a multi-sectarian identity, it still is actually, embracing everyone in mandate territory, not Arab in any sense that would exclude non-Arabs. Okay, this is the, one of the problems that Palestinian became Palestinian Arab state. And under conditions of settler colonialism, you can't do that without excluding non-Arabs, and therefore, unfortunately, that has to be rethought <coughs> deeply. Um, not the racial ethnic construction affirmed by Zionism and imposed by apartheid. So that's why the apartheid finding recasts everything. That's why so many people don't want to tackle it. I think it is crucial. I think it illuminates where we are and what is going on, and um, I... Uh, the more I look at it, the more powerful an analysis I think it is. And I, I do hope you will uh, consider it seriously as a model for rethinking the conflict. Thank you very much. Thank you.